chapter 22, verses 24 through 38. And before we get to our text this morning, I want to ask everyone here, have you ever been with a group of friends or a group of people and found yourself wondering where in that group you belong? Maybe you wonder who's the most popular or who's the best athlete or the smartest or the best working or best at their job or the greatest. Well, I hope it's not what we're always thinking about when we're with a group of friends or even acquaintances. It's kind of human nature for us to wonder about those things, to wonder how we fit, sometimes even how we rank. It even happens with people who are in church ministry when they get together. I know it sounds kind of strange, but it happens all the time. And one where it happened a lot that I remember is when I was a a youth minister and later a youth pastor and going to youth ministry events, because the question was always asked, how many kids are in your youth group? And whether the person meant it this way or not, they were asking, how do I rank against you? And it still sometimes happens when I get together with other pastors. How big is your church? There's this desire within us, whether we know it or not, to want to know how we fit, how we rank, so to speak. And this morning, the disciples have been told that someone is going to betray Jesus, someone among them, one of the the 12. We know it's Judas, but they don't know this yet. They They haven't been told. Jesus hasn't told them yet. They haven't figured out. Jesus has, Judas hasn't left them yet. Jesus has just told them that one of them is going to betray him. And immediately after, wondering who the betrayer might be, right, they, the text says at the end of our text last, last time, they began to question one another which of them it could be who is going to do this. And naturally, that conversation of oh, who's going to betray Jesus naturally leads into, hey, I wonder who's the greatest among us. That's really strange, right? They begin to launch into a dispute of how they rank. Who is the greatest disciple? Seems like a really silly thing to be arguing about in light of what Jesus has just told them. It's times like these in the Gospels when I often catch myself thinking something like this. Disciples, are you serious? How stupid are these guys? I rank myself against them. But in reality, we're all just like the disciples when it comes to our relationship with others and with Jesus. And I'm going to actually say that we should thank God for that in light of our passage today. Because if we weren't just like the disciples, we'd have no hope in Christ. Let's read Luke 22, verses 24 through 38. A dispute also arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But do, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves. 
Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded that to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have, return, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day, will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your son Jesus was indeed counted among, numbered among the transgressors. Lord, I pray you'd help us this day to see that we are indeed like the disciples, transgressors who Jesus invites to his table. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we can continue in our series in the Gospel of Luke, and we came to the Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples before going to the cross. And we saw the reality that is for everyone, that apart from Jesus, we are sinners in slavery, not slavery in Egypt like the Israelites were, but slaves to Satan, sin, and death. But in the midst of sin and evil, Jesus provides a new exodus. And we saw that because Jesus is our Passover lamb, we are set free from sin and evil. Jesus and his disciples in our text today are still sitting at the table in the upper room. They've just experienced the way that Jesus repurposes the Passover meal and makes it about him and the salvation that he offers. He's predicted that one of them will betray him. And that's where we pick up this morning. Jesus sitting at the table with his disciples, mediating a dispute over who's at the top of the best disciple list explaining that they will deny him and describing the difficulty before them, trying to explain what they still don't get. Think about how strange this scene is. It would seem that instead of faithful followers and friends, Jesus is surrounded by a bunch of failures. And not just failures, but transgressors, 
lawless ones, rebels, covenant breakers is what transgressors mean. Twelve of his closest friends and followers who are covenant breakers of friendship, loyalty, and conviction. And what's amazing is that in order for Jesus to fulfill his work, these transgressors around his table and everyone else who transgresses his law are numbered with him. Our text is showing us today that we must be numbered with the transgressors. We don't often like to be thought of as failures. I don't know anyone who does, or even worse, transgressors. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, to be called a transgressor, a lawless one, a rebel, a promise breaker, might be pretty offensive. Because I imagine that you see yourself as a good person. And maybe in comparison to others you are, and yet in comparison to the perfect example of humanity, Jesus, you and I fall incredibly short. If you're here this morning, you count yourself a follower of Jesus, you may also wince at the thought of being a failure, a transgressor. But in reality, we must be numbered with the transgressors for us to be numbered with Christ as His people. And our main point today is because Jesus was numbered with, his, with the transgressors, we have forgiveness in the face of failure. Because Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, we have forgiveness in the face of failure, failure of pride, failure of conviction, and failure to understand. First, failure of pride in verses 24 through 28. As amazing as it seems in the midst of Jesus' revelation about the coming suffering, the disciples are fighting over who is number one among them. And Jesus responds by talking about the kings of the Gentiles in verse 25, exercising lordship over them. The disciples would have been very familiar with the Gentile model of authority, right? Ancient Near Eastern kings had long claimed to be gods and had ruled with, with tyranny. Greek rulers had adopted the same posture through much of the Eastern Mediterranean. And the Jews would have viewed the Roman emperor as the and his provincial agents in much the same light. Rulers and others who doled out favors from the vantage point of power were called benefactors. And the practice of being a benefactor was widely praised in Greek circles. And so Jesus telling his disciples that what they already know, this is how the world works right? The Gentile leaders, they, they, they lord their ranking <laughs> over everyone. And they become benefactors of others to make those people honor them. But Jesus is reminding his disciples that seeking power as a Gentile does is not the way of his kingdom, right? It is not among you, right? 
Rather, the greatest among you as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Right? The youngest was thought of as the one who had the least amount of authority in any given situation in, in that Jewish culture. And so, Jesus is saying that even the, the old, the, the elder in the room, the one who would get, gain authority by the, who they are and their experience in life is to be thought of as the youngest. The, the leader is to serve much different than what and how the Gentiles act and function. Jesus points to his own example and not the culture to explain what this looks like. The offering of his life is his ultimate act of service, but he has taught them over and over and over again about a life of service. In John 13, we see that in the context of where we are right now in the upper room, John has a picture of Jesus serving the disciples by washing their feet in humble service. Right? Jesus is reminding his disciples and us that greatness is not defined by position or by your resume, but by one's attitude and service. Those to whom his kingdom is appointed are those who will serve, right? It's not those who recline at table, but I am among you as the one who serves. But Jesus doesn't end there. He, he doesn't end with this reminder of what it looks like for God's people, for his disciples to live in his kingdom. He goes on to say that, in fact, there will be positions for his disciples to live out authority. As they serve in the kingdom, so they will be appointed to authority. Those whom his kingdom is appointed are those who persevere with Jesus through his trials, he said. It's not a requirement of perfection, but a requirement of those who follow him, even in the midst of failure and come and seek his forgiveness and restoration. Jesus reminds them that there will be a suffering, a following in his footsteps, and yet they will sit on the throne of the 12 tribes of Israel this refers not to them judging in terms of a judgment of whether they are saved or anything like that, but judgment in terms of the fact of those who judge or those who lead the new Israel, the new church. The authority given to Jesus' disciples is unique because they are then appointed as apostles, but all of Jesus' disciples then and now share in this promise of the coming kingdom. While the disciples will sit on these thrones of the authority that is given to them, 
All are welcomed to the messianic feast at the table that Jesus speaks of. That you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom. Jesus welcomes all those who follow him. Jesus is giving a picture of what Matthew does when Jesus talks about the kings, the keys of the kingdom, or what in John Jesus talks about bestowing the office of the keys upon the disciples. This is where Jesus is showing us that his disciples are given the apostolic ministry of of judging, of leading, of shepherding his people. This is the apostles' job to, to lead his church, to faithfully disciple, to faithfully shepherd his people as he gives them these roles in his kingdom, as he gives them the keys of the kingdom. And what's interesting is that we must not misunderstand this. The keys that Jesus gives to his disciples, the keys that he subsequently gives to his church through the ministry of the apostles is the keys to administer and rule over the church, to preside over the church, to preside over the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, to exercise discipline for those who are guilty of notorious sin and to restore those who repent. Those are the keys that Jesus gives to his church. There are some today and throughout church history who believe that authority, that these keys goes beyond the church. That this, these keys of the kingdom, this authority that Jesus speaks of is an authority given to his church to rule and reign over the kingdom. The kingdom is broader than his church. He has not given that authority. That is his authority and his alone. Jesus is the king who rules over his kingdom. This authority is his and his alone. The authority he has given to the church is that authority to make sure that the church carries on the ministry of the church faithfully. First to the apostles and then to those that the apostles set up in the churches and pastors and elders and that continues to this day. That is the authority that Jesus has given his church. We must be careful to understand that that is where our authority lies. It does not mean that we as the church don't speak to authority outside of their church, but Jesus is clear that he has established the civil authority for its realm and the church authority for its realm. And as I said, there are those today, particularly in a movement called the New Apostolic Reformation, who believe that the apostleship has been re-entered into in this time, in this place, and that the church has been given keys of authority over 
the kingdoms of this world. We must be on guard against this kind of teaching because Jesus has not given us that authority. That authority is his and his alone. Not just failure of pride that Jesus gives forgiveness in the face of failure, but the failure of conviction, verses 31 through 34. It's interesting that Jesus speaks to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. We kind of miss this in the, in the English translation, but when Jesus is referring to you, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, we actually see that that is you in the plural form. Satan has actually asked to sift all of the disciples. Satan has asked to sift every disciple of Jesus. Satan demanded that he have you, right? It'd be like Satan demanded to have Yin's guys, right? If you're from Western Pennsylvania. But then Jesus specifically focuses in then on Peter, right? It's Yin's guys that Satan wants to sift like wheat. But Peter, I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned again, strengthen your brothers. Right? It's interesting that Satan has asked to sift all of the disciples like wheat. And yet Jesus focuses in on Peter specifically. He focuses in on Peter specifically and says that Peter, as great as your failure will be, right? As he'll tell Peter in just a few verses, as great as your failure will be, I'm praying for you. As great as your denial will be, I'm praying for you. And I'm praying for you that when you return, when you repent and return, that by your repentance and your return, you will strengthen your brothers, the disciples. You will strengthen them as you return to me. What a great reminder that Jesus gives us in this passage, right? That Peter, who will deny Jesus three times, will be returned, will return and find forgiveness and be there to strengthen his brothers and by his extension, us, his brothers and sisters in Christ to have seen and know the depth of Peter's denial and to be reminded that he will be used to strengthen us. Jesus shows 
that he is the one who advocates for us through his ministry of prayer. He is the one who shows us that he knows not only Peter, but knows us better than he or we know ourselves. When we try to stand in the pressure of our own strength, we wilt like Peter. Self-confidence when not relying on Jesus is deceptive like Peter, and yet Jesus says, return to me. Find forgiveness. I'm praying for you. Peter will be able to strengthen his fellow believers because he now understands how easy it is to fall. He can call on his brothers, call on us to embrace God's mercy and be prepared to suffer, be ready to give a defense because he will have experienced all these opportunities himself in failure and seeing great reward as well. We often focus in on Peter's denial here, but this isn't the focus that Jesus is getting at. The focus is not Peter's denial, but his return to faithfulness and his leadership in strengthening the other disciples. Remember, they're still at the table. And Luke is reminding us that as they are still sitting at the table, there are sinners (laughs) at the Lord's table who now and later receive forgiveness of sin and who will later receive forgiveness of the sin of denial as they sit on the beach and Jesus feeds them with fish and bread by the Sea of Galilee. The risen Christ restores Peter, restores his disciples, and he restores you and me again and again and again. He restores even those who have failure of conviction. And finally, he restores those who have failure to understand. From this moment on, Jesus will be numbered with transgressors. We see Jesus as the suffering righteous one who comes to identify with sinful humanity, to place himself in solidarity with sinners and die on behalf of all. Transgression is an inevitable element of human life. And because transgression must be overcome before there can be joy and celebration, it can only be overcome with forgiveness. Jesus' final words make it clear that the circumstances are changing. Opposition is rising where Jesus has sent them out empty-handed, they are provided for. Now they will have to take provisions and protection for their travel. And yet Jesus says, even in the midst of that, I will be numbered among you. I am there with you. I am numbered among those who are transgressors. You in this room, those beyond 
forever and ever. I am numbered with those who are transgressors. Jesus is ready to go. He calls his disciples to follow him, even in the midst of a difficult situation that is ahead. Jesus says it's fulfilled that he was numbered with the transgressors. You know, Jesus spoke of the betrayer, of those who think too highly of themselves, of those who deny him, of those who don't understand the virtues and values of the kingdom. All this reinforces that the meal that Jesus left us is for sinners. Sinners who have been forgiven and restored in faith. Confirms the character of Jesus, of his table fellowship that he's shown throughout his ministry of welcoming sinners to his table. The meal, the Lord's Supper, his kingdom is not for the greatest. It's not for those who stand in their own strength, but for the weak and inconsistent sinner saints who come to Jesus. That is who Jesus welcomes. He welcomes the transgressors because he was numbered with us. Because Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, we have forgiveness in the face of failure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that your son Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. And Lord, I thank you that for all those who have come to your son Jesus, we have realized that we too our transgressors. And then in that realization, Lord God, we have been found in Christ. Lord, I pray if there are any this morning who do not see themselves and know themselves to be transgressors in need of a Savior, Lord, I pray that be impressed upon them this day. And Lord, for those of us who were counted among the transgressors and have received new life in Christ, Lord, may we walk this path together as sinner saints and know that we are welcomed to your table. We are welcomed in your kingdom, not because of who we are, Lord God, because of who you are in Christ. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.